Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I am Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group, and I'm here with James Whelan, Macro Strategist and Investment Manager at VFS Group. How are you, James? Fantastic, mate. Always great to uh, to start the next round of 15 shows. Uh, it's going to be going to be a cracker, this one. One of my favourites. Yeah. Uh, joining us on the line from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Will Colgo. Uh, looking forward to this. And uh, yeah, all good. Yeah, we are truly scattered to the four winds. Uh, Amsterdam, uh, Sydney, various parts of Sydney from for myself and James. And our guest is in Adelaide. He will be uh, familiar to some listeners. Um, if you don't know him already, you are in for an enlightening, intelligent, and on points, I'm sure, entertaining chat. Uh, he, under, he oversees... Uh, $10 billion in assets uh, at uh, South Australia Statewide Super, and he has had a fascinating career in financial markets, including a stint as a director at Merrill Lynch Institutional Banking. Uh, he also has great taste in music, which we'll probably talk about in a little while later, but it's Con Mikalakis, Chief Investment Officer at Statewide Super. Con, welcome to the show. Oh, great. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, let's jump straight in. Uh, pullback in stocks this week. It all looks like uh, it, it steadied out. Um, but are you worried a little bit about uh, valuations, about where we are um, with equities at the moment? So I think Ken once called it the lobotomy paradigm. Is that what you called it, Ken, in <laughs> yeah, early on? Yeah. And I just think we're in this weird world where everything's expensive because you start off at cash at zero um, bonds at zero. And so really absolute valuations are incredibly expensive and really you're playing a relative game today and when when you're getting no income out of your defensive portfolios, you're stretching to take either duration risk or credit risk or equity risk or illiquidity risk. And I think that's what's really been playing out perhaps since the GFC and now we're in a sort of souped-up version post the post the march or post the policymaker response in the pandemic, and and really for the health of the market, a good pullback is definitely what's needed. I mean, it's what you would expect to see given that it's been such a stellar comeback since the massive falls back in March. Um, do you think there's a bit of adjustment in expectations required here because? You know, for, for years, and um, fund managers, I think including yourself, were just trying to manage down expectations on returns because um, it was good for quite a long while after the GFC or it was okay. Um, but there was this period there, probably about 2018, 2019, when a lot of um, big managers like yourself were talking about, look, it's getting harder to find uh, returns in, in this market. Um, do you think that that is still a theme? Um, or do you think that, you know, some people talking about this is a new cycle and we might be, you might see some more growth-like returns uh, over the next couple of years? Well, I think you've got outrageous valuations in these sort of tech darlings, glamour stocks, and then you've got these stocks that, that make no money, but they're sort of concepts and they're, they're valued multiple billions in market cap. And then, as I said, let's get back to the original sort of argument. That's cash is zero, bonds. I mean, we just we just had an investment committee today and, you know, we have a benchmark in the fixed income of, well, let's call it 50-50 Aussie bonds, global bonds. And the duration on that's, you know, nearly seven years. The yield to maturity on that benchmark is 0.8. Let's call it 0.8% yield to maturity on, on something with a six-year duration. Now, how are you going to get a return? Well, the only way you're going to get a return in that portfolio is either taking credit risk or taking a greater duration risk because you're going to go further out the curve to get a yield pickup. Um, or 
if you're going to have less bonds, you're going to tilt into equities or you're going to tilt into um, infrastructure or you're going to just go anywhere where you can just generate a return. And I think that's been playing out since the GFC because rates have been low. And we're almost in the sped-up version of that since March where basically incredibly low policy response to interest rates has just enabled people to take risk and hence the the big rise in markets. Plus, to be fair, there's been a fairly decent fiscal response around the world trying to solve this pandemic. Um, I think the price of risk has gone up, the price of returns have gone up, something's going to give, um, and you just don't know when. Yeah, I, I suppose, Con, I'm going to jump in there, and, and that, that prompts me to ask something that I've been thinking about for a while. I mean, not, not, not just in the context of, obviously, this conversation, but generally the investable uh, universe at the moment. I mean, how, how do you personally or how does statewide address the notion of, of herding? And I suppose what I mean by that is the fact that with all asset classes, at least those of more of a liquid nature, um, tending to a perfect correlation of one these days, I mean, everything moves in the same direction. Real money investors such as yourselves, are, to me, it looks like you're increasingly obliged to target the same universe in largely the same manner adjusting, as, as you yourself said, only for maybe, I don't know, the investable horizon and a modicum of risk profile. So, I mean, how does that impact, you know, this herding sense? I, I think I think everyone's got the same problem uh, here, Ken. You're right. Yeah. So you're tilting into equities, you're tilting into credit. We've, we've picked up some special, situ, uh, special sits credit or market dislocation credit, but that opportunity sets... Um, was was very brief. We think it will come back again as the economy passes from sort of government to private. As that baton goes, I'm sure they'll drop the baton so you'll get opportunities. Then you're going into the weed areas, you know, you're looking at alpha or you may be looking at hedge funds or you're looking at different strategies that, that trade differently to your typical equity bonds cash mix. But it's hard, right, because you have to pay a lot in fees mm. for that. And, you know, they some of these promise you roses and you end up with thorns. Um, okay. it's, it's tough, Ken. Uh, I think you, what we've done, we've run a bit more cash. Knowing that cash mm. is zero, we're happy to go underweight nominal bonds and take a bit more cash as optionality in the portfolio. And from our perspective, um, you know, one good idea is value or valuation strategies in equities as opposed to uh, momentum or growth darlings in equities. The spread in that is at levels since the late 90s. But you're almost playing a defensive game knowing that um, if there was another massive fall, you, you hope you'll do better than the markets falling. So you're going to have a negative return but do better. And if the markets mm. are going up from here, you kind of say, well, if I can just keep up knowing I won't, do as well, but we prefer the downside capture to the upside capture. So, so basically, you're, I mean, if, I, if I've understood, I suppose, what, you, what you're getting at, in part, you're obliged by virtue of circumstance, not just you, but generally, you're obliged smalls to move more into the illiquid uh, side of things, only by virtue of trying to do stuff or get some stuff that's not, you know, correlated. But also you're, again, if I've understood correctly, you're looking to trade not trade, but invest on a beta rather than on an alpha basis, right? Just so that you're you're exposed, but you know maybe more to the upside than downside if, if and when it swings. Um, Hopefully, more alpha um, okay. in, in sort of the active strategies. Yeah. In terms of the illiquid strategies, more sort of in the credit area, mm, mm, um, mm. as okay. opposed to anything like infrastructure or, or property. Um, but you're getting into areas where. There aren't any pockets that's cheap. Um, I know James had this uh, famous quote, buy everything, <laughs> been bought, and um, everything is expensive and it's now a relative game. Yeah, yeah that and, is. And that's, uh, so, sorry, one last question. It's just because it's, it's led very nicely into it. My, my concern, and I, I asked this of Kerry Craig some weeks ago in a, in a different frame, in a framework, but my question is this. I mean, considering the fact that... Uh, you know, the, the risk-free rate globally is basically oscillating around the zero, uh, zero bound, right? Um, do, do traditional value metrics even matter anymore? I mean, you know, like 
the, the valuation models, like, are they just bust? And what now? <clears throat> so I reckon, I reckon the rubber band's been stretched. So you're stretching everything on valuation as much as possible, but, and then it'll break. Mm-hmm. What's the break? What does the break look like? What's, what what triggers that? Point? That is the great trillion bazillion dollar question. <laughs> we, we went, yeah, we went through this a bit last week. Just go, what, what does the end, what does the end game actually look like? What actually snaps it? And and I got nothing. You go. And and uh, you know the a question I frequently get asked: What's the catalyst? And and we don't know. We just don't know what the catalyst is. But we do know that when valuations are so stretched. They do become brutal, and it's it could be an external shock or something endogenous like option trading by a whale that could just cause <laughs> by, by a large that name could just yeah. cause that could just cause things to turn around, and and that's really the only response I can give to that. Yeah, and I will just just I mean if we are going to use use the example of this week, we saw. We saw what retail, the retail market can do in the option space, and just how far it can stretch that elastic band out. It, it was it's annoying to go and 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 to tell people, oh well, the Nasdaq Nasdaq's come off ten percent. Yes, but it had just risen twenty percent since the end of July, and after five weeks, I could I could turn around and tell a client that oh we're up ten percent, it'd be great, and if you sort of blew your eyes, it makes it a lot easier to look at. But looking at the volatility from that snap up then snap back, it just makes it more difficult. Do you reckon that we've got more of that sort of that spikiness to, to go on? I mean, for as long as because the, the SoftBank, the SoftBank whale, just on that, that, that everyone was talking about the SoftBank whale, but massively outshone by the, the huge volume of retail call options to open that were in, in small accounts. So it was that. Do, do you think that we got more of that sort of that spiky up and down, twenty up, ten down, as opposed to? you know, three up, one down, two up, one down sort of situation that we should have in a nice normal market? I think so. I, I think, and I'm terrible because I've been saying this for years, but we are going to get a lot more volatility. In fact, we've had a lot more volatility. And and the, and because maybe money's hurting, maybe everyone's going to the same places, just the move at the margin to just can cause things to move a lot quicker. The The... The difficult thing that we're trying to deal with is to try not to be a short-term trader. So when you think about this, we're a super fund. We're running money for the long term. It's to think out beyond 10% moves in a week and say, what, how do you want to position the portfolio? And that's why, you know, in a sort of our version of a default fund, which is like a growth fund, you know, there's about 8% cash. Six seven percent bonds, uh, mostly corporate these days. Fifty percent in equities, mostly more global than Aussie. Um, some defensive alts and growth alts, being venture capital, credit, long short, and then the rest are just under twenty percent in infrastructure and property. So so you know we're we're trying to keep the portfolio broad because of what's happening. And, you know, um, almost playing a game where at the margin, keeping a little bit of cash and just not trying to be too cute, trying to react to these moves. You said uh, cash was up. What, what's it at the moment? It's about 8%. Mm-hmm. And our neutral is roughly 6 Cash for you, what is cash? Is it all cash or is it cash-like products? Uh, no, ours is uh, – we prefer cash to be cash. So it's you could be term deposits. It could be uh, our managers run cash, traditional cash mandates. There's very little credit in it. If you want credit, then it goes into bonds or this weird thing called defensive alts. So we don't want to be um, cash. It's just cash and, that and, you can liquidate. Uh, and what kind of um, on a term deposit with with a fund like yours? Um, what kind of <laughs> um, what, what kind of interest rate can you get on it? Yeah. So, so you know, overnight, what's overnight cash rates? Ten points below ten points yeah. these days. You you go a little bit out, and you can get twenty to thirty points. There are some banks where you can pick up special deals and get forty or fifty points going a little bit further out. But you know, they're that, based out of Estonia, right? 
the, 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 those banks are out of Estonia, no? Accounts, so you get a bit of a pickup, but th- th- there's nothing there, right? Cash is zero. Let's just yeah, let's yeah. just agree on that. So, so um, you talked about a lot of volatility, right? And trying to manage, uh, uh, you know, manage your downside and um, not try to go lean too far into chasing the upside. Um, <laughs> in that environment, when prices are moving around a, a lot, do you have to trim and adjust the portfolio? Like, so do you have to do a lot of buying and selling, which you know, by its nature, will, too, will uh, increase volatility in markets? Like, do you have to do a lot of of, of management at the moment? No, we, we allow tolerance of plus or minus 3% from our target. And particularly in these markets, we'll let it drift a bit towards the end and then uh, rebalance it back. So we try not to um, overthink this. And and also, you know, as I said, cash is now getting up there. We'll, we'll look to deploy uh, something. We're, we're looking at various strategies strategy in securitize or asset-backed strategies. Um, so we're looking to deploy a little bit of uh, a little bit of that money there, but we try not. You know, it's interesting in this environment with all this volatility and movement. We're trying not to get sucked into trading it, um, which I, I think is interesting. Um, probably, and probably for you know, th- there's a whole new class of retail investor out there now. And hello, if you're listening. Um, Hi, guys. What a time to get into markets uh, because I imagine there's a fair deal of scrambling, you know, people seeing, oh, no, I'm down 50 bucks today. What about what do I do? Um, so um, let's just uh, – I'm not going to use the phrase take a step back. Um, I almost did. I hate that phrase. Okay. <laughs> you just I, did. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, you know that, um, you know, take a step back. You know, um, let's just take this offline, uh, you know, phrases you hate to hear in meetings. Let's not say it. Okay. So so there is a big tension that's there at the moment. Con, you mentioned earlier, as you mentioned earlier, uh, stocks have been rallying. Um, uh, I saw a chart you posted earlier, which was that big dip, you know, very fast uh, drop that we've had relative to um, other uh downturns in market downturns in history uh, and a much faster rebound um, and uh, stocks are expensive on lots of measures uh, on, you know, on a historical basis and um, but we're all aware that there are some very significant and, and risks and two that kind of seem quite obvious to me are one is the prospect of renewed lockdowns um, in response to new outbreaks in major economies in particular um, but then also this kind of idea that, you know, we might start to see in some places um, that as economies recover from this, that the fundamentals just really don't look good. Employment growth doesn't look good. Uh, inflation remains very low. Invest, business investment stays very low. Um, and maybe there's a realization um, that the earnings recovery, which all of this is pinned on, uh, is not going to materialize. So how do you think about these risks because they're quite unusual uh, and I don't know if you've even seen anything like this before in your career um, but so how are you trying to um, steer through it? So let's agree we've seen nothing like this at all in our careers and 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 you know 54 at the end of this month nothing nothing like this I mean you know GFC late 90s long-term capital this is this is unusual Um Look, there, there, there are other issues. There's how do, how do policymakers respond to pan, to, to this pandemic, and we're heading into a northern hemisphere winter, and it looks like cases are going up. So how will they react to this? You know, how they're going to react as the delta goes against them. Then you've got international geopolitical tensions. There's a lot of things happening. No one's talking about trade. And there's a lot of tensions, obviously, between Australia and China, US, China, and that you know that sort of goes against a lot of things that's happened the last say 30 or 40 years. Climate's also been issued. We had the issues here in summer. The US is just having some terrible pictures. You can see here at a, at a San Fran. You've got elections coming up, and and basically markets have priced in a very benign outcome due to low rates and have bounced back sort of predicting that either the policy response will be there to have their back or there will be some sort of vaccine or some sort of treatment and things are relatively benign. 
or that the world's changed and these tech darlings are worth gazillions and the other stocks aren't. Um, I think it's factored in a lot of good news. Um, you know, there's no margin of safety in that market today. Um, it doesn't, maybe doesn't need that much margin of safety because if you get back to Ken's earlier theory, and that is if cash and bonds are zero, equities can return three or four percent. You're getting four or five or even five. The equity risk premium on cash or bonds is pretty good. Um, it's not the eight of history, but it's still beating everything else. But I think to get that return, you have to be prepared that you're going to see dips of 20 or 30 percent. And then how does investor behaviour react to that? And then you get a sort of endogenous internal cycle effects, feedback mechanisms. And that's why I like diversification. So I agree with you. Um, I think we're in, I think the markets have factored in far too much good news in this. Uh, would you be would you would you be happy to go more into a rotational side of things? I mean, you're just talking about diversification, so I, you know I'm I'm keen to run with that and talk about some actual portfolio management side of things. We got we got some pretty good feedback last week just when when I actually talked about nuts and bolts on 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 having a portfolio there. Do, do you think that internal in that in that equity space that that, that the rotation from tech to, uh, from growth to value is something that'll probably keep on going on for for a little while ahead? Yeah, it was an interesting thing that I heard when I heard you guys discussing that. Look, uh, we've got a bit of a valuation. We, we kind of run the portfolios relatively neutral, but there's a definitely a fundamental value or valuation approach if I look at the Aussie equity and the global equity portfolio. Or if I, if I take the harder point, there seems to be our managers are averse to owning stonks. They're averse to owning companies that don't make money and are priced on billions of dollars or have very aggressive accounting techniques. Yeah. Um, are we seeing that rotation? And that rotation is probably healthy, I think, James, for the market. I think getting breadth in the market will help the market. But because of the way the stock markets are designed by market cap, that means that the indices could probably fall. Because some of these large stocks are now dominating the benchmarks around the world. And you may see a time where the, the, the benchmark doesn't do much, but your average stock or your median stock will do better. So you're playing a game of relativity, uh, relativities here. Yeah. The, um, no, just, just going on with, with that, just talking about – so in the ETF space, if, if we're talking about ETFs, which is sort of where I like to, I like to dwell in that sort of thing, the, the equal-weighted ETFs is probably the better, uh, the better place to be at the moment because it's not so dependent on, on the big end. What, we've, what we saw last week, the beginning of last week, is the increase in, in that volatility that just ticks up at just a touch and then everyone has to sort of wind back a little bit more and get a little bit more into cash – that's that's only going to get worse and worse and bigger and bigger the more ETFs that, that come online. Now, this is one of those free kick, open slather, stand on your soapbox, go for it con questions, mate. Do you reckon that, that fundamentally the, the, the market and our industry should change from that, from that being a thing? Because the more volatility that kicks up, the more risk off you need to be, which then kicks up more volatility and then risk off, and that's the dog chasing its tail scene that, that, that that's there do, do, do you want to go on that one mate it's a is that there's a soft the market, pathway if you the market want it. is a bunch of institutions or individuals that react to market movements uh well you know was it so isaac newton i can predict um you know heavenly motion but i can't predict the minds of individuals i mean who knows when something really bad happens how individuals behave what we do know what markets do is they all fall right they all fall quickly a lot Right now, will the rotation cause the market to fall? Will increase volatility cause the market to do something? I'm not sure, but what I do know is it's healthy for the market to see some rotation, and how that plays out will be very interesting. I think, James. Mm. I, I've just come just just on your um, previous point regarding the fact that. Uh, markets have seemingly priced in, you know, a lot of good news, or they're not factoring in let's say, bad news to come or too much of the bad news. But, I mean, could, it, could that in itself be a function of uh, the fact that markets as a price discovery mechanism are just busted? I mean, if you look at equities as a mattress of where to hide money or put money, so to speak, safely with some sort of return, you know, so everyone's all of a sudden in equities, right? Cash is yielding nothing, so no one's holding any cash as such or, you know, the, the bare minimum. So, I mean... 
are markets genuinely pricing in all that good news or is it just the fact that... Yeah, so is there a market equilibrium? Well, clearly, this we're not in any equilibrium, right? You know, there's no such thing as a Phillips curve. There's no such thing as a neutral interest rate. We don't know what it is. And there's no such thing as a fair median cap PE of 16. It never gets hit. It's either 50 or 8 and somewhere <laughs> in between that, right? A fair point. But I, I think, you know, as I said, the rubber band gets so stretched, there will be a time where it's like the Matrix. Someone takes the pill and wakes up. And the first mm. one that wakes up will, will probably say something and move something, and, and this will happen. But, but you know, we're... You know, we talk about what's happening in the markets. Typically, we have these three circles. It's the economy, policymakers, and markets. And normally, they all interact. We've got this fourth circle, the first time in our living careers. It's called a health crisis, a pandemic. And that's actually dominating the other three. And we just do not know. I think that's the fair question to you, Ken. We don't know what this means. And therefore, yeah. holding your nose and holding these positions, that's why we have 50% in our portfolio, 50% equities. Because you know what? Mm. I, want, I, I want that exposure because over the long term, even if it delivers a lower return, it's probably still going to be cash and bond. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, fair play. I wonder, you know, you talked about, you know, um, interesting accounting practices, you know, amongst some companies and, um, you know, you're talking about how you're, you know, you leave this up to the managers to, to pick the companies. But are you uh, really interested to get your perspective on this? Are you taking a bit more of an interest in, in the individual companies and their management now, uh, given, the, given how um, steeply priced uh, uh, companies are at the moment? Well, we have to, uh, especially with our direct mandates where we, we have what called separate accounts and our managers can vote on behalf, we can instruct our managers what to vote. We have to take more of a thing because of the whole ESG environmental social governance and there's also being a long-term equity holder. So where we have direct mandates, there's a lot more interest in how we behave, A, how we let the manager behave, they run the show, and how we should approach that as long-term shareholders. When you're invested in, say, trusts or, or pooled vehicles, what we're then interested in is how the manager, what type of manager, how do they behave, how do they approach, you know, how do they trade their portfolios, how do they invest, what are their beliefs, how they treat about um, the whole sort of activist area. And, okay, there's qualitative stuff, so the quants don't do that. I mean, they still vote their shares and, and they get and they have filters for ESG. But the, the more fundamental, I, you are seeing more and more of the fundamental or the long-term shareholders getting involved in, with boards and in management because society is asking more of that. So are you doing a bit more of that? Like are you going to see companies more than you used to? We don't rarely want to see companies. We've been involved from time to time on a governance issue and you can lose a lot of time a lot of time, but we have a dedicated ESG person and we let our manager and we can band together with the industry if there's an issue. Can I, I'll put you, put you on the spot, I, and I, I know I didn't flag this for you, but um, you may not want to answer it, but um, uh, what, what about Rio? Uh, like, have you, um, with, with this Duke and Gorge, um, you know, there's people calling for, for, the, um, for, for Jake's to, to go, uh, other executives to go. Have you taken a position on this? Yeah, so our managers have been, I'm going to use the term engaging, so you know, I don't want to give, but you, you bet there's been a lot of discussion across the industry and with the managers with Rio. Ditto, we have one particular manager. We don't hold any AMP, only with one deep value manager, and they've been very vocal in um, with AMP um, or Talon Gray, so you can see that Simon's been in the press. Yeah. So um, the type of managers we get, they, they get involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a social license. I think that's the other thing we've learned since Royal Commissions, and, and particularly now with JobKeeper, <coughs> there is a social license in the corporate world that you need to be aware of, and you've got to be careful not to abuse it. The, the other thing we didn't discuss, inequality is really huge. Um, you know, the last 40 years, you wanted to be capital, not labour, and structurally, maybe on, on over the next 20 or 30 years, you may start to see that reversing because people, uh, p- 
people are sick of, of, of the gap that's growing everywhere in the world in inequality. Are you saying- that's not me discussing. That's, you know, I've, I've heard Ray Daly you know, talk about that. Yeah. Um, you're seeing a lot of people now talking about this being a, a, an issue. Yeah. The, and and the, just across, across the spectrum, I mean, it's possible that the answer to the question, and agree or disagree, Con, that the answer to the question of what snaps the rubber band is that eventually that that we are sick of it becomes and now it has to snap the rubber band that eventually that the, the uprising and I, in my view I, I think it's possibly the only thing that could snap it but I, you know do you think it's an investable you know the spark is there unfortunately to ignite uh, a pretty bad outcome and it could be anything because of, you know, if you're an owner of capital, you've done really well. If you're a worker you and you're not owning capital, you're not happy, right? You've missed out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, do you want to play the tape to the end then, Con, about what happens next? I mean, like we've got a b- bunch of smart guys that are sitting around sitting around a recording, you know, sitting around a few microphones at the moment. So you tell us what goes on over the next 10 years for a long-term investor and a long-term thinker and, and, and run it through and how we should be positioning ourselves to, to either capture it or to avoid, you know, I don't, I don't want to end up on the wall. I try and be nice so to as many people as well. A long-term investor should expect that returns will be a lot lower than they've recently been, to expect that volatility will be a lot higher and to expect that the world that we're now inhabiting through COVID and post-COVID will be a bit different. Um, in terms of trade, in terms of inequality, in terms of climate change. There are, I mean, I don't want to be overly pessimistic because there's a lot of good things that the planet does, but I'm just saying it's, you know, it, it evolves and we, we are taking over a different environment. I, I will say this, though. One thing I've been listening to is, you know, the 20s were pretty bad 100 years ago. There was the First World War and then the Spanish flu, yep. which by all accounts was a nightmare, right? Um, you read this stuff and, you you know, you walk around. It's terrible. You see how many people died in the First World War. That set up the condition for the roaring 20s. That's that's a good, that's an interesting way of putting it. There's always there's always a bubble in the 20s. Are we, look, we've locked our kids, the youth, the boomers want one more big trip before they sort of go local we also, when this starts to open up, we may be setting up conditions similar to the twenties. Yeah, now you might. Everyone might just let it rip when this finally gets gets through this. Well, I've I, I, and yeah, I've, I've sort of been going with this angle as well, saying that that I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to be putting our putting the boomers onto various cruise ships and filling them up with a lot of cask wine, and I'll see you later because, and now we can all go and buy houses, but. The millennial, this is the they're seeing it as the millennials' chance to get into the U.S. housing market. Um, we've seen housing starts, building permits go up, and and this is the chance that a lot of people are taking to, to make the move. Lumber obviously getting a huge spike and a huge bid underneath it at the moment on inventory as as well because it was low on inventory. But it's it is possible that this is a boom that is as big as the baby boomer post World War Two exuberance that 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 we'll see, and I'm I'm happy to run with that as a theme. It, I think that it will be more evenly distributed uh, with regards to the results. Though, James, isn't there? We're going to see multiple things. We've got to get through this virus. I think there is a bit, bit of a hangover, but as things open up, and hopefully they do, you may see people just want to go out and have a good time. Oh, damn straight. It's the, it's the three scoops of ice cream theory is, is, is going to be, which then goes leads to inflation, and inflation will beget rates, which then will beget a revaluation on growth, theoretically. Yours. Right? Yours, massive yours, mate. Sorry, <laughs> I'll, I, I'll I, take the other side. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't see inflation anywhere. I mean, besides the textbook, I don't see inflation anywhere, mate. I'm not, not, not in, not in. Yeah, no, yours. Sell it there. No, Move go, on, go with it. I, can I double with Ken? And um, I, I'm, um, I, I, really struggling to see inflation. I mean, you, as a portfolio head, you want. A little bit of inflation protection again is part of diversification. So you know we've got a bit of RV in, and we've got one particular manager that has some linkers and and break evens, you know, and they play around in that area because you you just you know you, you never know. But I'm with Ken. I just I'm really struck. I'm worried about aggregate demand. I don't see a lot of inflation. Well, that's great. 
Go, go nuts. Everyone can go out and spend up and, uh, and the value of their dollar still, uh, still rides high. Um, the, w- w- one of the things that has definitely changed, Con, uh, is, um, and I think changed permanently, uh, is probably, well, at least for a generation, is, is, um, is views towards fiscal policy. Um, you know, it's done, it, it has views on fiscal policy or, you know, people's um, unshakable beliefs on, on the state of the budget position uh, have changed dramatically uh, in this country and in others. Um, now, I know uh, for a long time, and I think you've been leading this conversation for a couple of years uh, in the investing, investment community in Australia uh, about the role of fiscal to support the economy in the right way, uh, certainly uh, has come about <laughs> this year, um, you know. But maybe um, let's let's talk about that, and because it, it, you know, there's benefits that are obvious, um, you know, like in, in terms of like keeping money in people's pockets, putting a little bit of support under the consumer. Uh, but how how else do you think about um, the role of fiscal policy at, at a time like this? Um, yeah, so. So let's talk about the journey. So Keynes in the 30 broke broke economics into macro and micro micro and, and said, you know, the importance of fiscal policy in a time of dire need is the only thing that it's it's the spender of last resort. And and here we are today with you know a pop a health induced mini depression where um, people cannot work, cannot go out in some areas can't even have curfews, lockdowns, who can spend the money? And when you think of a fiscal budget deficit, it's a surplus into the private sector. And that's what we've seen around the world. Um, They've learnt from the depression. I would still argue in many countries it's not enough. And you're seeing interest rates at zero, massive fiscal stimulus or fiscal support into the into the private sector. Now, a neoclassical would say, well, you know, rates will go up, or um, you know, yields will get will crowd out private savings, or there'll be inflation, or, or all of that stuff. Right? You haven't seen it because there's no demand. There's um, arguably in some areas of JobKeeper, JobSeeker, we had household disposable income up two percent in the in national accounts and. And they obviously haven't spent it all, so savings has, has gone through the roof. But, but you know, they can't get it. You know, they, many people can't leave their house. There are many industries from higher education, hospitality, travel, tourism, just lots of areas that are severely disrupted and disrupted for a long time. And, and having fiat money that's created by the state, if you're a sovereign, who can then spend that money into the private economy and keep it going until it finds its way is the best is probably the best approach there was um i i, I um people who used to listen to my old show will know that i don't name names when i make criticisms like this but i saw one writer um um talking about how you know uh, uh you know victoria is more than just an economy you know it's a community um and uh, that you know we don't the we don't need to save the economy we need to save the community and I'm just kind of looking at this going and going man yeah but you know and and I think one of the lines was you know discretionary spending is exactly that it's discretionary but it's not discretionary spending if it's somebody else's income you know to to the person who relies on you know two hundred people with their discretionary dollars coming to yeah. them every week. Uh, that is essential spending. You know, it's not a decision for them. They need it. Um, and the way that this has, like, completely blown up small businesses, it's absolutely tragic. I saw some uh, data today, um, which um, probably get reported in the coming days, but it shows, um, you know, um, the number of jobs lost at big businesses in Victoria is about um, 3% of the workforce in in larger businesses, uh, and when you get down to um, when you get down to smaller businesses of twenty employees or less, uh, they've lost more than one in ten. More than one in ten people who work for those size of businesses uh, hasn't got a job anymore. Um, you know, so uh, it's um, it's just horrendous it, um, what it's been doing. I think you know the other thing. I'm just going to make one more 
little little comment, but it's this thing of I made the point last week that you know one thing this has thrown focus on is the importance of the consumer and individual people in the economy. You know, a lot of economic commentary tends to be focused on well the importance of business and you know the corporate world says this you know um and yes it is important because they make the you know very large investment decisions uh and they have big um sort of satellite economies that rotate around them so they are super important but um if you hit the consumer you know you 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 can wreck the economy you can bring it to a halt um uh, which has happened what's happened here and it's only uh the government that can that has the scale uh, and the resources to deal with a crisis like this. So, for all this talk we hear about the importance of, you know, we need to pull back the role of government in society, and it's too big, and all that kind of stuff. It needs to be there, and in fact, businesses were turning around, you know, uh, that were often saying pushing back on the on the scale of government a couple of months ago. They were like, "Please, government, come and do everything you possibly can. Um, help us out." You know. Um, so, um, but the the other thing about this uh, con, obviously, is um, and you were alluding to this a bit um, in talking about fiat money with a with a sovereign um, currency issuer. Uh, is modern monetary theory. And we touched on this a couple of times in, in early episodes of the BIP show. Um, but uh, I know you've taken a bit of an interest in it and, you know, again, taking the lead and sort of driving some of the conversation in investment circles. Um, but you're a bit of a fan, right? Yeah, I, look, modern monetary... I grew up in the world of, you said, interest rates, there's a neutral rate, there's a Phillips curve. First of all, we used to target the money supply and then we tar- had inflation targeting... Uh, let interest rates drive the economy, that'll stabilise. Well, how's that worked out? How's that panned out, everyone? Have, how, have rates done, done enough? I don't think so. Um, so MMT just turns around and says, you know, have, have fiscal drive it. Um, there's a thing called a jobs guarantee. That's, that's also part of it. And then rates come out the back of that and think about how you can spend into the economy or do infrastructure or, I mean, there's still a private sector, right? It's just saying it's a, just a different way to look at how the mechanics work. And also, there's just, you know, how bank reserves get done or banks have reserves when, when, when the government runs the deficit, reserves extract and contract, and then they issue bonds. Just the plumbing of that is also interesting. And I think MMT does a, a fairly decent job describing that scenario. Yeah, to, like the, but, the, way, the way I try to explain it, I think I've got the elevator pitch uh, down pretty well is that you know currently um, when when, re- when government revenue is below what it spends it goes to the market and borrows um, but MMT kind of says well you just don't need to do the last bit you you, you can yeah. just spend um, so so you don't actually need to 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 swap out some paper for those dollars. Yeah, you can just do the dollars. Um, no, no, exactly. And look, I'm a, I'm a relatively recent into it, and I would, you know, you're better off getting an MMT um, specialist on, on your show, and they can go through the plumbing. Stephanie won't return our calls. To make reasonable. <laughs> it's uh, get going going with that, and I want to, but I think uh, Ken, mate, if you wanted to, to, uh, yeah, to shoot I've on got, there, mate. Uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to. I mean, look. I, I'm neither a, a proponent or a detractor of MMT. Like, I'm honestly, like with most things, I'm fairly ambivalent, and I appreciate that it's just another way of looking at, at you know, the way a system may work or another approach and whatever else. To me, ultimately, I suppose, and, and Connor, I, I suppose I want to get your your feedback there, it all boils down to whether it's in the, under the current system or, or an MMT version or a hybrid, doesn't matter. boils down to two things. One is the transmission mechanism. And two is ultimately demand, right? Now, arguably the transmission mechanism for all intents and purposes it has been and is sort of working. I mean, obviously in, in the latest round of fiscal since the, since the wake of the pandemic, you know, governments across the world have thrown everything they can at it. Some things have worked well, some haven't maybe worked as well, but all in all, they're, they're doing okay, right? They're now at the point where they're trying to figure out how to pull, pull back and, and what to do next. But all of that fails to do what is so incredibly important 
in getting the economy, any economy to work, which is stimulate demand. Money's been free for God knows how long, be it, be it cash rates or whatever. Uh, now the, the governments, various governments are pumping money in, great, fine. But, you know, uh, am I going out and spending that much more just because I can borrow for bugger all or the government's lining my wallet or, or what, right? So how, how does that get addressed, short of a vaccine? Yeah. So, Ken, you, you basically described the fiscal situation well. You're at the zero lower bound and, and, and you want governments can cut taxes or they can give you money. I think I think what you're saying is the marginal propensity to consume. I'm not an economist, by the way, but quickly becoming an amateur one. The marginal propensity to consume or the multiplier effect, what can have yeah. the economy coming back? It's gonna it's gonna end up with government spending into the economy, whether it's infrastructure projects or rebuilding things or fixing things. I mean, they discovered that in the depression, and if this pandemic does go a lot longer, and and businesses and the economy is impaired, the only thing that will basically raise the standard will be spending by government as opposed to giving... I mean, they'll give people money, but they'll have to spend and find ways to employ them. Yeah, if you want to grow from here, um, the extra money, the incremental spend, that the private sector isn't, like, lining up with, like, trucks of money saying, here, we're ready to invest, we're ready to go now, um, because there's no demand on the consumer side. I mean, you know, why would an airline, for example... uh, uh, lease some new planes. Why would uh, a hotel chain uh, renovate its rooms? You know, um, you know. But you can do things like uh, upgrade roads, um, build railways, expand ports. Um, uh, you know, refurbish hospitals. Uh, all of that stuff that kind of lays a foundation for um, a functioning society. Like, if you want to create work, if you like. There's work that we want to do, not pointless stuff. I, I, I do have a problem with the, jo- with the job guarantee con, which is that, um, you know, uh, unintended co- consequences, you know, why it, it reduces the incentive for people to fight to stay in their job and work well at them and to get companies working effectively because if you don't, if you know that you can always get a job somewhere else, you know, why bother? <laughs> oh, oh, look, oh, I would, I would say reach out to the um, specialists in MMC, and they can talk about the JG. And it, look, here's the other thing about economics. So Keynes split the profession. Then you had Joan Robinson, who sort of kept true to Keynes, and she was they. They were the post Keynesians. Then the Americans tried to marry classical economics with Keynesian and became neo-Keynesians or the neoclassical synthesis, then Friedman came around and did monetary policy and famously Joan Robinson turned around and said that I don't recognise, this is bastard Keynesian, this is not what it is. MMT's been around, I don't know, 30 years and I, I, it's a relatively recent adaption of what they call post-Keynesian economics. I, we could do a whole series of talks on that which i find fascinating but maybe many others don't uh so (laughs) but i'm I'm I'm, but colgo just to your point i think i think this is essentially what what con's suggesting i mean if you look at any version of economic theory across the last 100 200 years whatever every single one of them in one way or another creates a negative externality right there is no perfect answer system so, again, while I'm not particularly au fait with, you know, MMT and the job guarantee and this, that and the other, there's, always, there's nothing. There is no perfection because, at the very least, every economic model or theory is based on a handful of assumptions, half of which maintain that the moon is made of cheese, the sun may or may not rise tomorrow. You know, it's, it's that sort of thing. So, as a consequence, even if, even if all that worked, you will invariably get negative externalities. So, you know, what are you going to do? Well, I'm reading a book uh, at the moment uh, called Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen, and uh, it's a bit of a polemic, um, but, but his argument about um, uh, where, where conservative politics has led, uh, he's, much more critici- he's much more critical, I think, of the left side of politics, but he's also critical of the right uh, in saying that uh, you know, conventional free market capitalism has led to, uh, you know, it leads to naturally to winners and losers. Uh, and we're now kind of at the point where that's 
what Western advanced economies are. Uh, and it's a framework of thinking about, you know, how politics works today. That, you know, part of the reason that people are angry is um, there are so many winners and losers. And like in the environment that we're in, and Kanye talked about, we actually almost started this part of the conversation talking about inequality. You know, if you're asset rich at the moment, if you've got a strong um, stock portfolio uh, in Australia, if you own, you know, a house or two, uh, you're okay, you know. Um, but if you don't have those things, they're getting harder and harder to afford because there is no wage growth uh, and the prices of those assets are going up. So yeah. so they're getting further out of reach for people. So you get this natural sort of like, uh, you know, blue water between the between haves and have-nots. And this is the way he, he thinks about it now, by the way. It's not necessarily the way I think about it. But I do think it's an interesting framework. What he says about the left, I think, is a story for another day. Um, but, he's, you know, but basically, he says, you know, the left has created all this anger uh, and people, you know, identifying whatever way they want and kind of so you end up with no sense of community. So as a result, he says, the end point is you have loads of winners and losers, uh, people feeling there's no sense of community, um, and people feeling lost and angry. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, I hope this makes it in the cut. Everyone's got the shits. Yeah, that's made it in the cut, mate. Everyone and everyone, everyone does. If I could just just chip in there and just talk about the verbiage, bro, um, which was there. But if the if the if anything has shown us is you know that the, the people that the, the people that are getting money that absolutely needed it, I saw it as just the headline in the paper that it was about. A lot of single mums, this is the first time they've been able to fill a fridge. It's the first time that they've been able to give their kids a birthday gift because it's difficult to get off that off that first rung. I'm not saying right or wrong, but it's 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 going to be, then all of a sudden we're taking that back away. And I think that, that if anything, coming back to, you know, that the end, the end game of this, of this pandemic, of, you know, the, of the release is that a lot of people have gone, you've... You you were able to throw all of this money at this, and our lives were actually fulfilled, and we were able to get off that first rung. Sure, no one could actually go out and do anything, but but it does give people that 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 support. It's actually starting to bring me around to, to more and more to that idea as well of of maybe maybe there is a way that's outside of this way that we're doing it. Maybe we're just a little bit a little bit too far down the, the first one, and maybe this will be part of that. Yeah, I mean, when you've got Bill Ackman writing in his annual letter that. You know, he's worried about capitalism and he likes the Australian super system because at least you can, the workers can own some capital. It's kind of interesting, right? This is where it's going. So, yeah. but one thing, the other thing, just to change subject on on, on you three is the, the other weird thing we've seen in this pandemic is we're getting that we're seeing the rise of localism over globalization. So, you know, there's a Brisbane, there's South Australian, there are Victorians, there's New South Welshmen. Before there was Australia against the world, but now we've got local. I don't know what it's like, Ken, in, in, in the Netherlands, but you've, you've basically got local communities who are sticking to their own because they can't travel, no one can come in, and you're getting a lot more localist approach to, say, even global or national. And it'd be interesting to see if that's temporary or if that sort of stays in the psyche for a while. Well, I, I think it's very interesting, Con, because in, one of the things there is in the last... Um, decade or two um, with the rise of the you know the clear sense that we live in this huge world open borders um, but also with it a concomitant rise in the sense that um, things happen on the other side of the world and end up affecting you uh, you know directly so great example GFC um, a bank that nobody's well few people have heard of um, goes bust uh, and then a few weeks later the Australian government is sending people $800 checks in the mail um, to, re- to rescue the economy and the banks are getting you know deposit guarantees and all that kind of stuff you know the, the, the connectedness of the world is very deeply understood by people uh, and I think that's that's been in the last couple of decades and as a result you get this thing of well like what can I actually look after what can I influence how can I make my own sort of world better and part of the answer to that is in within your local community what your local community looks like and um, your village yeah yeah your local village and one of the responses to that that we're thinking about you won't see in the next couple of elections you didn't see in the previous one no one's going to be sticking up for free trade or trade no <laughs> no <laughs> it's, it's uh, there's some hot and cold topics but, on this one and paul you'd, but, you'd but have I mean, a better insight to what they are than i would mate 
But, but I mean, hasn't this pandemic just, you know, as we've seen with, with the tech nonsense and various valuations in, in markets in general, you know, the, the tagline has been that, that this pandemic has simply accelerated the trends that were already in place and that we've been seeing for a little while now. Now, arguably, ever since Trump came in and, and probably even small before that, we spoke about it, I think, last week with, you know, the rise of the five-star party in Italy and the like in Greece, etc., there, there's been a revulsion increasingly towards globalization. Like it's almost gone full circle, right? The, the Sino-US trade war and the breaking of uh, logistics chains and whatever else has really put that to the fore. But now you're stuck indoors. So again, I mean, were we not just simply always sort of headed down this road anyway? And now we're under a distinct obligation to be here because circumstances dictate. Yep, fair. I think that's a, that's a, I, I agree. Well, so I, I, I'm the eternal optimist on this and this is, you know, probably one of the few hills I, I will die on um, that overall uh, global trade uh, is good for society uh, and therefore there is, uh, and there is a fundamental understanding of that. Um, it is just the overarching story of uh, nations and people that they trade and um, uh, and increase towards peace and increase towards uh, collaboration and just sometimes we just don't necessarily get the details right uh, go away and fix some things um, but yes uh, I agree Paul but not if it's global supply chains based on tax ARBs and so if you've got, <laughs> yeah. if, if you've what, got what are you saying about the Irish what? <laughs> well, I, think, I think he's having a go at the Dutch as well, mate. I mean, there's a few specific countries we're going to have yeah. to apologise to. Yeah, here's a great, I, and I here's in a great arguing to an Irishman and someone in the Netherlands about tax. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the Australians caught in the middle going, right? <laughs> I pay for I pay my fair share. Yeah, so I say nothing as long as I can clip the ticket on the way through. Is that right, James? Yeah. So, yeah, so mate, yeah. trade is fair trade, and 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 taxes, and there's no tax arbs. It's fine, but the way you, look, some of these tech companies are basically tax arb companies exactly. as well. Yeah. yeah. And and it's like, and I think that is one of the issues. That people look at them and go, uh, they've become so large, you know, in such a short space of time. And the question is then, like, what for the companies that they do business? You know, the in the the, the industries where they compete with other businesses, um, they have an unfair advantage because they're able to find ways of legally, dramatically minimizing their tax while extracting well, vast amounts of revenue this, that would have gone to other businesses in the first place. This is a thing, Colgo. I mean, this is innately the NRA National Rifle Association argument. Guns don't kill people, people kill people, in that if the global legal framework or tax framework or whatever allows for this to happen, you'd be mad not to, like honestly. So if, if in, in the sense that if the situation exists whereby companies, be it Google or, or Facebook or whoever it may be, are invited, induced, motivated to be, you know, somewhere rather than somewhere else or there is a tax arb to be had, well, who's the idiot? The, the, one that, the one that sits with his hands on his hips goes, no, no, I'm going to be the good bloke here, or, or the one that goes out and actually makes the most of it. So, so is the parallel something like, you know, um, uh, free trade doesn't kill uh, uh, capitalism, companies kill, cap- kill capitalism? Well, and also, well I, don't, add, I don't know. Add that to the list of worries that if you're, if you're running aggressive ta- accounting and tax issues as a multinational, the social licence will be put to question in the next couple of years. It's already on a question, I think. Exactly. And it's going to get worse. And um, So one of the things, one, one very good way to sort of deal with all of this, um, you, know, you know, there's lots of options in terms of responses, but one of the best ways is heavy metal. Um, <laughs> cranking it up um, and an Ocon uh, you've got uh, an eclectic uh, very rich uh, library of music that you listen to um, so it's time to check in and, and hear what's on the turntable at the moment oh um, and I apologise I've 
really eclectic tastes, which is uh, other people speak for terrible taste in music. But I do like it on the heavier side of, say, Metallica. So the new Lamb of God is a fantastic sort of very hard, thrashy, death metal, if you want to give it. Um, and Machine Head, which has been around, I've just released Bulletproof and another single is pretty good. And just to lighten them, uh, the last Pearl Jam album's fantastic. And only because before I got into this, New Order just released the one called Be a Rebel and Gorillas Aries with Peter Hook on bass, who's ex New Order. Just to mix it up, they're fantastic good tracks. Old, good old Gorillas, yeah. Um, I have to say, this year I've rediscovered a bit of um, Pantera and Nirvana as well, and I've forgotten how good Nirvana were. Well, try Lamb of God. That'll that'll get you going. Okay. <laughs> I was um, for my um, Father's Day present. I was allowed to um, uh, crank up my guitar on uh, on Sunday morning um, for an hour because I, I don't really get to play it at home because it's uh, well, I don't get to play it loud. Um, so I had it go, going with the, the Hendrix tunes on uh, on Sunday morning. It was uh, it was good fun. Um, and uh, James, James, what are you? Um, what are you listening to? I, I saw some Bond music going through your um, social media feeds again this morning, mate. I'm getting myself all worked up for the <laughs> for the for the next Bond. I, uh, I I did a little bit of TV. I had my classic my classic grey suit, blue tie combination on. Uh, I'm 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 going to go with a, a certain Bond theme going all the way through. I find it very difficult to get into new music. I, I like being sort of stuck in my ways and. Uh, and that I discover old old things. Listening to a lot of boom crash opera at the moment, mate. I've got you and I have got very different tastes on, on these things, unfortunately. Um, Colgo, when maybe that Aussie metalcore band Polaris plays, we'll take them out. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't own, nor have I ever owned a black t shirt con. So you're going to know a lot about me based on that. It's going to be it's 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 uh, it's just not my scene, mate. It's it's just not. We can introduce you to everybody and say this is you know this is our friend. He's new here. <laughs> yeah, hi guys. How's it going? Just wear like a blue t-shirt or something. You'll be fine. Yeah, right. I'm the guy. Hi guys. Yeah, I actually yeah. I saw for the Bond uh, trailer. Uh, I went to see Tenet uh, the other night. Um, the um, the what's his name? The director. I can't remember. Christopher, Christopher Nolan. Nolan. Yeah. Um, I um, so I went to see that the other night, and it's very good. It makes no sense. A bit like Inception is the first time you see it, or first time around you see it. Uh, it makes no sense, but um, I'm sure you can slowly pick it apart over many years of watching it. Um, but it's worth watching. Um, but there was a new Bond trailer, uh, you know, that's just for the movies at the start of that, and it looks fantastic. So I'm very excited. Might be the one. one it might be the way to you know start 2020. Uh, the summer in Australia, you know, Bond movie coming out. Um, so days. when do we see, when does it go normal, just going around the grounds, when do we see a vaccine? Uh, who wants to start? Uh, I, I, th- I think uh, a viable vaccine, I, think, I mean, didn't Russia produce one a couple of months ago, but uh, no, I think a viable, properly tested, one that people generally are prepared to stick in their veins I'm 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 bid at the minimum at eighteen months. From eighteen, I'd, I'd spread. Yeah, I'd spread at eighteen, twenty-four months. Yeah, I got. I've I've got one that says that there won't actually be anything that's viable. I mean, it's 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 gone too far. It's gone too far. There's new strains. The new strains will be tough to to catch. The the, the antibodies don't go. And I'm 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 long. My view is that there'll be an antiviral. Um, that there will be a. Um, medical treatment for it rather than a vaccine, which will be easily available, just a little pill that you take or whatever, and it um, reduces the symptoms and then people will um, be happier getting about moving about, which doesn't give, you, doesn't give you the same effect as a vaccine in terms of mobility, but um, probably uh, allows people to relax a little bit about catching it. Yeah, I'm the same. I think there's probably going to be a treatment. I don't know if there's a silver solution or vaccine, and if that's the case, it's probably 223. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. Cheery. Uh, uh, invest, invest accordingly on that cracking note. There you go. Just invest accordingly. We had the chance to, to eradicate it. We missed it. China's open for business and everything is fine, and we're all sitting here um, complaining about the Premier of Victoria. Well done. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Very helpful. Uh, for... 
anyone uh, who's not familiar with Con, you should be. Uh, he's on Twitter. Uh, he's a good presence there. Uh, regularly shares very brief uh, thoughts, which are almost like mini essays on big themes and markets uh, in, in 140 characters or 280 characters or whatever Jack allows us to do now. Um, so uh, you should definitely be listening to him uh, and follow his commentary. Um, uh, he's very uh, helpful and insightful um, uh, on everything markets and economics at Con. Thanks so much for joining us on the BIP show. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, E3. Uh, you can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. We're all there individually at Colgo, at James Whelan42, at Ken Vexler, and at Michalakis Con. Uh, James, thanks a million. That was great. Thanks, mate. Good on you. Good on you, Con. I'll talk to you later. I look forward to getting back over there when it's all open again. Absolutely. Come home. <laughs> uh, uh, good chat, Ken. Enjoy your day in Amsterdam. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Con. Been a pleasure. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everybody. The show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.